0: Listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined by a special guest. His name is Justin Elliott. He is the owner and founder of Elliott Multifamily, they're an apartment syndication business. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having me. So, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about what your business looks like today and then maybe bring us back to the beginning, kind of where it started?
1: Yeah, today I'm a syndicator primarily focused on capital raising and asset management. So I've teamed up with other companies that do what I do to take down deals and provide great returns for investors. So those are my focuses today. But I started in real estate back in 2016. So to go even further back, I I was a general manager for a Fortune 500 company and had a conference call scheduled one day by the CEO, which was very rare. And he was basically telling us that we would be sold to our competitor. And that happened, that was about 10 years ago. And I had been 10 years with the company thinking that, you know, I'd be there forever. And I I really loved it, but that kind of changed things up. And from there, I kind of, I went into several different things. I, I sold medical devices and I started two businesses, but all the while I was doing real estate or at least interested in real estate. So... 2016, I finally took the leap to get a triplex. So I started with that and did, you know, the typical Burr strategy, you know, buy it, rehab it, rent it out, refinance it. And I did that again with a duplex and then decided that, you know what, this is kind of a slow burn, right? I, I like it, it's fun, but I'm gonna be wealthy in about thirty years. So how do we <laughs> how do we step it up a little bit? So that's when I started down the journey of syndication.
0: I love hearing beginning stories like that. and I'm, I'm obviously very sorry you went through that, but it struck a chord with me because when I, I got into real estate three years ago, I'd watched my boss go through a similar situation. He had been with the company 17 years and they had an unusual scheduled phone call that said, you know, we're reorganizing and you don't have a job anymore. And I just imagined myself 10 years down the road, you know, having all these mortgages and car notes and kids in private school and all of a sudden the corporate faucet just turning off. And I said, all right, well, I need to start start thinking about something else. So that was really what led me into my my real estate journey. It was a wake-up call.
1: I mean, it was it was one of those things where I'd started with them right out of college and I just thought, I'm gonna keep my head down. I'm gonna work hard. And kind of like I was told from leadership, it's good things will happen, right? Like you'll write your own ticket, all those things. And sure. it was a rare circumstance. So that, that could have likely been the scenario, but it wasn't. And it, years before that, I had read what a lot of people in our business consider the Bible, rich dad, poor dad, right? Sure. But nothing clicked. Well, I shouldn't say nothing clicked. Something probably clicked somewhere, but I didn't act on it. And I revisited that after I, I, I had that experience with the company and started to slowly start to put some of those things in action and start to own assets versus just getting the W-2.
0: So can you tell us about your, your first deal? How did you get it? How did you finance it? Did you have a W-2 at that time?
1: Yes. Yes. And I still do. So I'm, I'm still, I'm actually doing medical devices as my day job and doing the syndication thing on the side. Although it's a lot of days it's actually reversed and I'm spending more time <laughs> on the real estate thing. But
0: I feel you. I don't want to admit that on the air in case I know. My boss ever hears. <laughs> I know,
1: I know. It's a risk, but it's the truth. But yeah, so the first deal, I actually took out a home equity line of credit on my the home that I live in. So this is kind of like the way to house hack when you have a family, right? Because my family's not going to move to a duplex and I can't consider my <laughs> wife to move move to a duplex with the three kids. But I had the, the equity built up in the house. And so I took a home equity line out and I used that as my down payment. I had a little bit of cash to fix it up. It was a triplex in a kind of working class, but up and coming area of Minneapolis. Back unit needed some work. So that was really where I spent most of my rehab money and put good tenants in it. There's a there's long story getting to that. Like I hired a property manager that I had to fire. I actually had property manager put a dog in there that got out one day, ran upstairs, killed the neighbor's cat, bit the owner's hand. I've had everything you can imagine as far as the trials and tribulations of a landlord happened to me on that first deal and I'm still doing it. So I don't know what that means, but you know, it was good experience and I kind of cut my teeth as a landlord through those first couple of properties. And that one worked out. I was able to put a little bit of money into it and kind of ride the market a little bit too, but get good tenants in there, get the rents up. And I refinanced it and I did the next one. And now I'm actually that first one, which I bought four years ago, I'm selling. Hopefully next week it closes. So I'll do pretty well on that one and it'll be a success story in the end. But there's certainly easier ways to do it, as I've found, as I've kind of scaled the business up.
0: Sure. Yeah. Another thing that you said that kind of stuck out to me was the house hacking for people with a family. So I bought my first house that I lived in my primary residence about a week before I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and started kind of like trying to figure out ways to invest in real estate. And I always said, like, if I would have read it two weeks earlier, I think I could have convinced my wife to move into one unit of a fourplex but I wasn't going to be able to get her to move out of that fancy house into yeah.
1: half of a duplex. <laughs> right. It's a tough one. If I had to do it all over again, I would definitely house hack. I, I love, it seems like I'm talking with a lot of younger investors now that are mm-hmm. doing that. And you know, I'm going to tell my kids to do it one day. I just think it's a good way to, to start off, especially when you see all these kids coming out of college with debt, You know, being able to have low living expenses or even make money on your first property while building equity is a game changer.
0: Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the transition from the small multifamilies that you were investing in with yourself to what you do today on the syndication side and the money raising side. I'm really interested for you to elaborate on on that because we we have a lot of syndicators on the show and everybody knows the basic structure. You know, you raise the equity, you pull a bunch of people's money together and then you go out and there's the general partnership and limited partnership. But what I'm interested to hear more about is the relationship between the different sides of the general partnership. So you had mentioned that you're more on the capital raising side. How does that work in relationship with the other side?
1: Sure. Well, let me start with how I got into this. So I, about a year ago, had decided that I wanted to go bigger than just these small multifamilies. So I thought I would just go out and get like a 10 unit. You know, that was actually my goal, but I was still nervous about doing that because I thought due diligence and, you know, commercial financing and Fannie, Freddie, all these things that I didn't know about. So I actually went out and hired a coach Awesome. And I did that as a kind of a form of insurance for me. But once I did that, and of course you drop a lot of money on a coach, you start thinking bigger than 10 units. Yeah. And so I spent the next year after I did that, just almost a year building up my knowledge and learning from my coach, starting to plant the seeds of getting a bigger deal under contract and building a team. And so fast forward to, June or July of 2020, really late June of 2020, I found a through a relationship that I built in a mastermind group. I found a, a teammate that got a, had a deal under contract and needed some help, and primarily they needed help with the capital raise, but they also needed help with due diligence and you know net worth and asset management, the whole thing. But it was really the the lead in for me was my ability to kind of tap into my network that I had primed for a long time and that were expecting a deal from me. So that's where I was able to provide value was to, to commit to a certain dollar amount. And I'll tell you really specifically, because I think it'd be beneficial to your, your listeners. And I, I talk about this a lot is, my commitment was to raise $250,000 amongst other things. I wasn't just gonna raise money, obviously, but I, you know, I was gonna do a certain part of due diligence and asset management. But on the capital raising side, I committed to raising $250,000. And I didn't get a big chunk of the deal right? I got probably less than what is fair for a typical syndication. However, I did it because it, it really jumpstarted me, right? So I made a deal where I got 10% of the GP for bringing in $250,000 and it worked out. We were able to raise the money. We had a total raise of $850,000 being three of us that participated. And we closed in August on 29 units on a deal in Augusta, Georgia. And since then, I'm closing on my next syndication next week, and I'm under contract on a third for 167 units, which, you know, is coming up. So... They talk about the law of the first deal it was certainly true with me but it was a lot of work building that team building those relationships priming investors getting to know the syndication business before ever getting into that first deal and then things kind of snowballing from there
0: awesome so i would guess that you like the the route of hiring the coach you're happy with that decision do you feel that that you've gotten your your investment out of that
1: yes for sure wouldn't have had the first deal really the three people that partnered on it we were all coaching students the same Coach
0: awesome.
1: he's also a key principal in the deal, so for me, you know if anybody out there that's listening to this that's thinking about a coach, I would say the biggest benefits are if they're willing to do it to help out with the experience side of the gp right so and I'm talking about specifically with the agency debt, sure right so if they can help with that that's a hard thing to get because you can't just have experience you can come up with money, you know liquidity net worth that sort of thing but experience, you have to, you really have to hire someone basically to have that experience. So it helped me a lot with that. And the other thing is when I went to actually raise money from people, everything about my pitch to people was that my coach is on my team. Why should you invest with me? You shouldn't, but you should invest with me because I've gone about it the right way. And I have my coach on my team and my coach has done, you know, how many X amount of these deals and has over 2000 units, whatever metric you want to throw out.
0: Do you mind mentioning what coaching program you went with? Yeah, so I went
1: through the Michael Block program. My coach is Drew Whitson, who's actually up here in Minnesota as well.
0: We hear a ton of people rant and rave about the Michael Blanc program. Yeah. I always feel uncomfortable asking because I feel like if, if like people would volunteer if they wanted to share for whatever reason.
1: Oh, I don't yeah, I don't mind sharing. I, I I don't know a ton about the other ones. I'm I'm actually partnered with a group right now in a deal that we're closing next week that were Jake and Gino guys. And yeah. you know, they have great things to say about that. And I've just heard that there's some good ones out there. The thing where I've heard maybe people go wrong is not specific. I haven't heard anything about any any coaching program really that has just been so disappointing. I've just heard about people coming into it, maybe not in the right frame of mind. Yeah.
0: They expect them to do the work for them and not. Yeah.
1: Totally. A coach is not going to cue a deal up for you. They're not going to raise money for you, right? You have to think of it like, an insurance premium that you're paying so that you just don't get into trouble along the way. I also thought of it as a way to like model my business because before getting into this coaching program, I was just thinking about apartment investing as investing in apartments, but syndication is running a business. It really is right. You you've got different moving pieces and, and, you got to have a lot of things going on. So you you really need to find a direction that you want to go. Like, are you going to have a platform and do that route where, you know, you're going to have email campaigns and all that stuff, or are you going to kind of work more of a local network and country club buddies and all that sort of thing? So there's a lot of different ways to do it. And a lot of coaches do it different ways. And a lot of syndicators do it different ways, but having someone to kind of benchmark from was really important for me.
0: So can you elaborate a little bit on the route that you took when it pertains to capital raising? What, what, what did that look like exactly? For you? So when I first started out, I knew I was going to have to raise money.
1: I was very, just very simply emailed everyone I knew, like friends and families. I just shot them an email and I didn't have a big ask. I just wanted to keep in touch with them and, and kind of gauge their interest. So it was something like, hey, you know, I'm looking for these types of deals. I've been doing this since 2016. Here's what I've done, right? I've done this thing where I kind of buy them, I fix them up and I refinance them or or I sell them. I'm looking to do the same thing now, but I want to do it on a bigger scale. And so I'm going to bring some investors along with me. Here's the type of returns that you can expect. Here's a minimum investment that you can expect. I'm going to put money into the deal myself. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't just want to keep in touch with me on it. Can I let you know when I find something? And 98% of the response I got was yes, right? I got a few people that were like, oh, you know, I'm gonna buy a vacation home. I'm probably not gonna do this. Or some people maybe they just didn't get it and weren't interested. But most people would definitely go along with at least hearing me out if I found something. So I went that approach. That way I kind of cast a wide net. And so when the time finally came, which I started raising money in July for the first time for when we were under contract on the deal. So right after July 4th, and that was, emailing everybody with the information on the the deal and making calls and following up with everybody that way. And, you know, I went from kind of a wide net down to ultimately only five investors that got me to what was a $300,000 raise, had a couple people drop out along the way. Um, It was definitely intense and stressful, but it was, it was fun.
0: Like it was high highs and low lows, you know what I mean? But it was fun. Awesome. So knowing everything, you know, today, is there anything you would have done differently? Good question.
1: Um, yes, I would have. There's a few things I've learned along the way with actually with capital raising. I think having a very strict, confirmed, and set out timeline of when you're going to do things versus like, hey, I'm just going to go talk to everybody and hopefully they'll sign the PPM and wire the money at some point. You know, I would structure things differently. You know, and I would have it very much like the front end of it would be talking to everybody, but then, hey, we're going to we're going to set a date. That's like, you got to have your money in. Because one of the things that I struggled with was I had two people that dropped out late and I had to scramble to get two new investors in. And the reason I I ended up kind of taking my foot off the gas because I had people verbally committed to do the deal and I didn't want to go talk to more people because I didn't verbally have room for them, right? If that makes sense. Well, then two people dropped out and now I got to play catch up. So you see how a lot of these syndicators do it, right? They're doing it because they've had this same experience where people drop out last minute. It's no good for the the person going to the closing table. So just having a deadline of like, Hey, you got to have your funds in and really, you know, it's first come first serve based on the wire. And if you don't make that cutoff, unfortunately you're not in this one, but we'll get you in the next one.
0: Do you have a particular CRM that you use to nurse these relationships and keep track of everybody that you've reached out to? I do.
1: Yep. I use HubSpot now. I've gone through a couple of them, but that's the one I'm I'm using. I like
0: HubSpot. Yeah. Awesome. So is that like a true CRM or is that more on the, and I asked because we we did a demonstration with, I think syndication pro and it was an awesome tool, but it was, it almost seemed to us like it was the, the like final stages of like getting investors, you know, actual funding and stuff like that. And not so much. uh, I talked to Bill three months ago. I I need to follow up with him this month or I met John in Denver and I need to you know, keep him warm. Yeah. So Syndication
1: Pro would be like an investor portal. So there's several of those out there that are more towards the tail end, like you talked about. When you need to sign documents and wire money, that's when you need your investor portal. And really, you probably only need one if you've got a lot of investors. You know, I was only trying to get five investors in this deal. I didn't really need one for what I was doing. But HubSpot is more of a CRM, meaning keeping track of email addresses and contact information and being able to send out, like when I did my most recent deal, I sent out a deal announcement that had a lot of links to it. Like, hey, where can you go sign up for the webinar? Or where can you view the slide deck? Mm-hmm. And so HubSpot allows you to do that where you can you know, have all of your list of contacts and, and send out an email and try to work people kind of into the funnel Then. And ultimately, which would be probably like a webinar or a meeting with you over Zoom. And then you send them the investor link, which would be like a syndication pro or the other ones that are out there.
0: Awesome so if you focus primarily on raising capital so you're pretty much always looking for other general partners that are more focused on acquisition how do you choose which partners you're going to work with do you have a particular markets you like or do you just have individuals you like or how do you make those decisions
1: I have both I have markets I like and I have individuals or groups that I like so the one that I'm doing right now is a group that I've been following for a while that's in my backyard up here in Minnesota and I I like this market because I know it. And that's actually specifically St. Paul is really one that I, I like. But I actually tried to get in passively on a deal, invest with them last year and I was too late. I couldn't get into it because it was full. And so since then, I've been following them along and just seeing how they're doing on their returns and keeping in touch with them and you know seeing how, how they're performing really. And then that led to a partnership this year to help them not only in raising capital, but also like guaranteeing the loan on this, this next deal. And then there's another one where it's a group that I'm investing with or have invested with passively that I know very well that are kind of mentors of mine that I have an opportunity to partner with them as well. So both.
0: So you mentioned passively investing before you, you actively invested. Did you start off passively investing to learn the process and did you learn what you thought you were going to learn from that?
1: So yes and no. I started the process of passively investing, but I actually found a deal to, to be a general partner on before I, I was a limited partner, just because of how the timing went up. I was kind of doing both at the same time. Okay. But I do think it's very important if you're going to be a general partner, I, I truly believe this, invest passively. Go sign a PPM and wire 50 grand to someone <laughs> and see how you feel, right? I think it's important to have, have that experience It just so happened that I only got part way through that before I actually funded my own deal as a GP. But I went the qualified retirement plan route, right? So, and I don't know how much you you or your listeners might know about that, but you know how you can have a retirement fund. You can roll that over into like a self-directed IRA. You can't use that money on your own deal. I like real estate. I believe it's going to do better than my mutual funds going to over the next five years. So I'd love to roll it in there. Not only that, but I can learn from this group that I'm doing business with on the passive side and see, you know, what are their investor relations communications like, right? What can I learn from the deal? It's in an area that I like. So if I invest there, I can say, Hey, I have 82 units in South Carolina. right? Right. And so I've got a little bit of credibility there, even though it's on the passive side. So I think there's a lot of good reasons to do that. If you're thinking about being a general partners, invest first as a, as a limit partner. Awesome.
0: So what is next for you?
1: Well, right now, I mean, it's coming hot and heavy with the deals and trying to raise money. So I'll be doing that through the end Uh, of the year. Are these 506Cs or 506 No, they're 506Bs. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, um, so that's kind of what's going on right now is just trying to make sure that we close on a couple deals and then, I'll have three if everything goes right, right? By the end of the year, I'll have three under my belt. And then it's time to really perform on the deals, right? I mean, it's time now to perform on them. And that's really one of my focuses. It's like we just have to blow the doors off these projects to make sure that they create great returns for my investors so that I can go back out and do it again.
0: What types of returns are you projecting for these? It varies, but right
1: around a... 14 to 16% IRR, depending on the deal. Cash flows have been in like 6 to 8% range. Equity multiples are doubling in anywhere from five to six years.
0: Okay, great. Are those the metrics that you, you take to potential investors? I know a lot of people kind of go back and forth. Some people use average annual. Some people use IRR. And I think the thought process behind using average annual versus IRR is like the typical doctor doesn't really study finance and understand the concept of internal rate of return.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I'm not sure the best way to explain it. I would agree like someone that's investing in stocks doesn't look at the IRR of a stock. So why do they care what the IRR of a real estate deal is? I don't know. But the reason why IRR is important, I think, is that just explain the equity multiple, basically. So if I say, hey, if this is a 15 IRR, then you know that your money should approximately double in five years. And that's kind of the benchmark that syndicators use, right? It, it always seems to be like, can we hit that 15 IRR? Can we double our investors' money in five years? And if I do that for you, Mr. Investor, I'm doing a good job, just so you know. Yeah. And uh, hopefully you'll want to do it again. That's kind of the benchmark that I'd explain. But yeah, the average annual return is probably a better metric. And quite frankly, it makes us look a little bit better as syndicators when we say, hey, I got a 20%. What are you doing in the stock market, right? Yeah. And it's true. That's the benchmark for stocks.
0: So have you bumped into any skin your knees in any any particular investor conversations or or maybe not you personally, but thing pitfalls along the way that you've learned, hey, I'm, I'm not supposed to say that, that's against the rules or or maybe something that, just something like a warning to our listeners that might be getting into this, certain things you found along the way that, that you want to advise them to steer clear of. I did
1: have something recently where, an investor brought up some regulations that were being passed in a city that had to do with like tenant landlord laws. Mm-hmm. And I was not a hundred percent versed in all of them. And I had an investor that really wanted to give me the call and response for every line item. And I had to kind of call a timeout and say, you know what, let me get a little more detail on this stuff. Long story short, I was, I was aware of all this stuff, but I didn't, I should have known it like in the back of my hand and been able to say exactly why our business plan wasn't really affected by these. And in this case, it was because we're a B-class asset and these are more like C and D-class issues. Sure. But that cost me an investor. I, that, that investor dropped out and this investor was really scared by, by a CPA that was pulling out of the, the market that we were investing in. And so I guess the, the advice there would just be make sure you know about what's going on and you're, you're, you're very thorough in the regulations and things that might affect your business.
0: Absolutely. So real quick, I just want to jump into our radio round where we ask three questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First question is, what's your favorite book? My favorite book is The One
1: Thing. Awesome. I don't know if you've heard of that one.
0: Does that come just, up on this program a lot? It has a couple okay. of times and I think everybody's already heard of it. The first person to recommend it on this podcast was Paul Moore. So I went, I just finished reading it actually. I finished yeah. it probably three days ago. Good. And, and I got a lot out of it. So I really, I walked away from that kind of rethinking and, and retuning my business and I, I whittled it down to, in pretty much every aspect of my business or my day job or, you know, syndication or the, you know, the normal local real estate projects I do, that it all boils down to prospecting. I found Mm. that to be my one thing, you know, Mm. we can get so bogged down in busy work and cleaning the desk and, you know, finishing the insurance forms and this and that. But what really keeps the needle moving and the engine going forward is calling either the new investors, calling the brokers for new listings, calling the wholesalers for new houses, calling, you know, for new sales. For me, the one thing boiled down to setting time aside every day to prospect.
1: Yep, yeah, that's good. By the way, Gary Keller and Jay Papazan, I believe, are the authors there. Yeah. Um, You know, when I read it, I think the one thing for me was a little bit more, I was thinking it kind of, you know, you can drill all these down. The one thing is really about drilling down, right? It's about knocking over that lead domino, which you just perfectly described. And just to take it another another view on it is my one thing kind of like ultimately was to create a certain number of, and I'll call it passive income, but we know that syndicating is not passive at all. Mm -hmm. But non-W2 income, let's call it, producing that number per month as a way to kind of financial freedom. And so when I read it, that was really what started me down the path to where I am today is uh, just having that top of mind.
0: Yeah. Another great Gary Keller book that it was one of the first ones I've read. I'm sure you've read it as well. The uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Yeah. That was that was one of the, I think. I'm looking like- at my
1: bookshelf. I know I got it up here
0: somewhere, but yeah. yeah, that's a great one. I think that was like number two or number three after a Rich Dad, Poor Dad. hmm but uh, that was a good one I always send to people that are that are interested in getting started. Next question is, what's your favorite quote? Favorite quote is, uh, I'm going to mess it
1: up, but it's something to the tone of, you know, the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. You know, the point being kind of a call to action for investors too. You know what I mean? Like you can't change the past. Maybe you should have done that real estate deal a long time ago because you'd be happy you did but uh, you'll be happy that you did it today if you do it now.
0: Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the Mark Twain quote, the secret to getting ahead is getting started. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. So the other thing is, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Well, I mean, for me,
1: I've got three kids. They're six, four, and two. So that's a big part. We, We love to go. We have a cabin. So we live here in Minneapolis, about two hours away. We have a cabin in Wisconsin. So in the summers, it's, for us with the long winters and short summers, we like to maximize every hour outside. So we're on the road pretty routinely on the weekend to the cabin to enjoy some time at the lake. Awesome.
0: Well, Justin, I really appreciate you coming on today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? How can they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, a good way to check me out would be at my website, Elliot has two L's and two T's. So if you go to elliottmultifamily.com, I actually have a video of the five lessons I learned in my first capital raise. So that might be beneficial to some people, even if you're thinking about raising capital years from now, it's a good way to just uh, to watch some some things that I learned and, and a good way to get started.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to go check it out. Thank you again, Justin. We look forward to keeping up with you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at capital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.